I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round we're doing Master and Commander. Why? Well, previously, on another podcast called Writers on Film, this happened. What would be a film that you would point out and say, this is a great film and also technically, historically nails it? Not necessarily even with the events, but just how things were in that time. Well, because we've already mentioned a few of them, so... Say Master um, and Commander. Say Master and Commander. Say Master and Commander. (laughs) Master and Commander is very, very good, and we haven't mentioned it, so Master and Commander. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, it's really good. Now, that was a few months ago. It was actually coming out because, just as a reminder to everybody, hey, my book came out in autumn of 2023, my new book called Hollywood and History, What the... Movies get wrong from the ancient Greeks to Vietnam. Now, Master and Commander isn't in the book, and that's because not every single movie that's set in a historical period can fit in one book. But the point here is it's a really good one to do because they put so much effort into making things historically accurate. Almost ridiculous, which of course means at some point later on, I'm going to move from the movie and then I'll be talking to you about The War of 1812, which is one of the worst names for a war ever. And also, we'll be talking about the Royal Navy, because of course I will be. So, lots of things to wrap around this. Pretty obvious. And actually, there's another reason why I'm doing this one, because I've been very clever for quite some time. Bringing in things like He-Man or Guns N' Roses. You get the idea. You've been listening to them for quite some time. And I really enjoy grabbing something which you don't initially think having a lot of historical references and then teasing them out and having a different conversation with you. I love those ones. But every now and then, I would just like to do a film that's clearly historical, but explore a little bit more of that history. So that's what we're doing this time around. And so what we're going to start off with is, have you heard of Master and Commander far side of the world. Some of you will have, some of you might go, "Uh, that sounds vaguely familiar, and some of you go, what? Cast your minds back to the year 2000, when you had Russell Crowe and his movie Gladiator gobbling up 
all of the Oscars and buzz and box office and zeitgeist of the time, which launched a slew of high-budget and less high-budgeted historical epics in the early 2000s. It could be Troy, it could be Alexander. He got back together with Ridley Scott and did Robin Hood. Most people forget that Russell Crowe was in a Ridley Scott-directed Robin Hood movie. Yeah, I know. And loads of other ones as well. Lower budget might be 300, which was equally successful. And one of the ones that got greenlit amongst all of this is a Royal Naval epic called Master and Commander Far Side of the World, starring Russell Crowe. They got Gladiator back in to do a historical epic. And Master and Commander is one of those rare things that's both a really good film and really quite historically accurate. Now, with Gladiator by comparison, that is a stone-cold classic. I've done a whole episode on it. Please feel free to go back into the back catalogue and have a listen to that one. Have fun with it, okay? I love Gladiator, but as I said in that episode, actually not very historically accurate at all. Don't tell anybody. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. But I digress. It's also in my book, Hollywood and History, so... Of course I'm going to talk about something like Gladiator because it's one of those films that everybody knows and is a good one to say, look, just because a film isn't historically accurate, that doesn't necessarily make it a bad film. In the case of Gladiator, the main thing they're trying to do is to entertain you, and they literally tell you that in the movie. Now, in this case, you've got Peter Weir, very well-regarded British director who isn't known for big action set pieces and more thoughtful, mature, dare I say it sometimes, political movies. And there was a certain eyebrow raise amongst British film press. It's like Peter Weir is going to be doing something like this. And the answer is it works really well. Because if you think about a ship of the sail, we are in the year 1805 here. So everything flooding into your head, not so much tricorn hats, those had faded away by 1805. They were considered old-fashioned then. But everything you can think of to do with Nelson and ships and these wooden ships pulling up side by side with each other and blasting each other with cannons on the side of the ships. Yup, that's it. That's where we are. And those ships were a microcosm of British society in that time. You have the captain. In this case, he's called Jack Aubrey, played by Russell Crowe, and he is obviously upper class. Do you think I want to flog Nagel? A man who stood beside me on the gunnel and hacked the ropes that sent his mate to his death under orders, under my orders. Do you not see it? The only things that keep this little wooden world together are hard work, discipline. Jack, the man failed to salute. For God's sake, Stephen, there's hierarchies even in nature, as you've often said yourself. And then you've got the salt-of-the-earth sailors, one of them being Billy Boyd, you know, one of the hobbits from Lord of the Rings. And don't forget, the Lord of the Rings movies were still coming out in 2003, so Billy Boyd was hot property at that point. You also got Paul Bettany, by the way, too. He plays the Doctor, and so... Peter Weir is allowed to scratch that itch about social commentary 
inside something that's a historical epic and something which has huge amounts of action and money poured into it as well. We'll be coming on to the efforts they've been put into it a little bit later on. But first of all, I've got to tell you a little bit about the story of this one. So the year is 1805, as I've already said, and Britain's at war with France. This is part of the Napoleonic Wars. Now, in 1805 was the most critical naval battle of all of that time. That's the Battle of Trafalgar, where, yes, Nelson may have died in it, but he managed to shatter the French Navy. Pretty sure there were some Spanish ships there as well. And the bottom line was, from that point onwards, well, there had been previous actions that Nelson himself had been involved in, like the Battle of the Nile, even though it wasn't on the Nile, and the Battle of Copenhagen, where, yeah, he launched a fleet of ships against a city and won. Impressive stuff. But after 1805, nothing happening, because it was such a crushing victory that really the next time the British Navy was seriously threatened was the Battle of Jutland in 1916. That's in World War I against the German fleet. And Jellicoe, the guy who was leading it, there are tons of books written about the Battle of Jutland where you could argue that it was a tactical victory for the Germans. The Germans seemed to cause a lot of damage to the British Navy, but it was a strategic victory for the Royal Navy because they managed to keep the German Navy bottled up. They weren't allowed to break out into the North Sea. But the main problem was Jellicoe hadn't trafalgared the Germans. It was a more nuanced victory, whereas anybody could read the Battle of Trafalgar and it's clear which side won. With that in mind, that's all sort of going on in the background. However, in the case of Jack Aubrey and his crew, they are going, as the title says, to the far side of the world. They're going round the Horn, not of Africa, but the Cape of the south of America and on into the Pacific, and they're going to go to the Galapagos Islands and so on and so forth, but they're up against this extremely well-built French ship that is almost bulletproof kind of thing, and they do make passing reference that it was built in America. This is a nod, because actually Master and Commander Far Side of the World are two different names of books because these were some of Patrick O'Brien's books about Captain Jack Aubrey. There were a number of people who made a good career out of having a made-up historical figure doing exciting things during various battles and wars and periods of history. It could be Flashman in the Flashman novels. It could be something like Sharp in the Sharp novels. All of these are sort of 19th century, some of them more during the Napoleonic era rather than much later, but there are various versions. Interestingly, most countries have that kind of historical novel-type angle, and Jack Aubrey, Captain Jack Aubrey, is another example of that. And you can tell by the title, they were obviously expecting to do more. Why weren't there any more? This film, after all, won two technical Oscars. It was nominated for some other more creative artistic Oscars, but it did walk away with two golden statues. Well done, it. And the problem is very basic. I think you can probably guess where I'm going to go here. This was an expensive movie to make, and it didn't really make its money back at the box office. Now, by the time DVD sales had happened and all that Royal Navy merchandise had happened, they even sold the ship to a museum 
because they wanted to have an authentic looking 19th century ship. The deal was, by the way, with the film studio, we'll sell it to you, but you have to loan it back to us if we need to make sequels. I think that's a pretty good deal. And actually the museum got an excellent deal because it was never asked for again. But the bottom line is, what's the point of making a series of movies if these movies aren't making a load of money? Now, it's a bit different if you're dealing with, in the summer of 2023, the most recent versions of the Fast and Furious movies and the most recent version of the Mission Impossible movies didn't make their money back at the box office. But that's a one-off. You can make your money back with the next one. But if the first one in a series doesn't exactly get into the zeitgeist, get into the media sphere, then, well, people have just told us we don't really want it. So sadly, you've got one and done. Now, unlike a superhero movie that tried to launch a franchise and never got there, this doesn't end on a cliffhanger. This doesn't have a moment at the end where it looks like Russell Crowe's gonna burn to death, and then you get an end credit sting of his arm going through the smoking rubble going, ha ha ha, I'm still back for movie number two, because it's not that kind of film. That is way too silly. That's why I wasn't allowed to direct this one, all right? As I said, it's 1805, in essence, away from the main areas of fighting, but obviously if the French and British see each other, they are at war with each other and they are obliged to fight each other. But it's one of these things where it's a cat and mouse game. In essence, this is like an 1800s version of that submarine movie, done a whole episode on submarines, where there's these two submarines going around the Atlantic trying to catch each other. A game of cat and mouse under the waves. In this case, it's a game of cat and mouse on the top of the waves, on the surface, where really, if it was head to head, the British are gonna lose. So they gotta be smart about it. Also in the meantime, Paul Bettany's character turns into a pseudo-evolutionary expert even before you-know-who appears onto the screen. So he's not Darwin. He do, he's not sort of bald on the top with a big white beard. Not that Darwin actually looked like that when he was on the Beagle, HMS Beagle, back in the day. But yes, I'll start going into how much effort they went to make it historically accurate. This was the first ever movie to actually film on the Galapagos Islands. So when you've got Paul Bettany running around having a look at this stuff, there's kind of a specialness to it anyway. Also, to give you an idea of how they got the crew together, there were various different tricks, including all of the cast got to stay together in the same shared accommodation, and there were no TVs allowed, so everybody had to interact with each other. So they just started to get to know each other, whereas the crew were kept separately. So there was this feeling of camaraderie that you can clearly see on screen. You've also got a scene where Russell Crowe is playing a violin. Now, at the time, I thought, he's doing a lot of finger work for just somebody to be dubbing in the sound. But it turns out, Russell Crowe, for this role, learnt how to play at least a few pieces on the violin. And in his own words, he found it the hardest thing he's ever had to do to make a movie. So, well done, Russell, in that regards. Then, as I said, they actually had a very accurately reproduced ship of the line created. So that was great. But there was a ship very similar to it that was doing a round the world. This is what sort of sociologists love trying to do. They love trying to recreate the past and anthropologists as well. And trying to create the past can be quite straightforward with something like flint napping that costs nothing but actually creating an entire ship of the line that's going to sail around the world well that's impressive and so peter weir knowing that 
actually gave that crew on a real ship. I mean, obviously, it's a replica of an old ship, but it's a real ship, really, really, in the ocean, and gave them era-appropriate clothing. And then when a storm happened, they filmed the storm. So that is a real bunch of sailors on a real sail ship, really, really dealing with genuine storm conditions, typhoon conditions. It doesn't get more real than that. The ship itself had something like 28 miles of rope produced for it, which again is absolutely accurate. There is a theory. Why Britain for the Industrial Revolution? Why not France, for example, or China, or the Ottoman Empire? All of these were big and impressive in their own way. Why didn't they start it? And so there is a theory. I mean, it's one of these things where you're going to have to pull together all kinds of things. Relatively easy access to coal and the scientific revolutions in Britain also coinciding with the likes of chemistry and understanding these things. There are a number of things to pull together, but I do like the idea that as the Royal Navy grew, it needed huge quantities of stuff. Sorry to get too technical there with all the nautical terms. And therefore, if each ship, for example, needed 28 miles of rope, you might as well come up with a better way of weaving rope than just having a bunch of women plaiting rope day after day after day. You need thousands of them. So maybe you create a machine that does the work of 20 women weaving or plaiting or whatever you do with rope. I am not an expert on the history of rope, okay? So because of that, there was a huge demand in the Royal Navy. That might be one of the triggers for the Industrial Revolution. But for Peter Weir, it meant he needed a lot of stuff to keep that ship going as well. So you can see everybody put a lot of love and effort into this movie. Then, as I said in the interview with John, when we went into it further, I was pointing out how what I loved about it is there's a drummer boy. He's about nine years old and you might have sat there and thought, what's a kid doing there? But children were there. Children were on ships. They were learning a trade. If you go back to Treasure Island, you've got the young boy. And that wasn't unrealistic. Other things in Treasure Island were unrealistic. But that would have made complete sense to people at the time. It's like, yeah, of course there's a boy on the ship. That's not just trying to make it up for a kid's story. And so you're learning a trade. Being a sailor was quite technical. Learning those knots, navigation. You could end up doing various different things. Even manning the guns was something that was extremely technical for the time. Just as a brief aside, you've got the dam busters of World War II, where famously, to try and destroy the Ruhr dams, they had these bombs that skipped along the surface of the water and then hit the side of the dam and then went down. If they just detonated on the top, that would have been useless, but they go down and then detonate at the bottom of the dam, which leads to the destruction of the dam. Why am I telling you all of this? Because during the Age of Sail, various ships worked out that you could skip cannonballs off the water and hit the enemy in a more vulnerable position. There were various cannonballs for various jobs. For example, a standard cannonball. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You all know what that is, but then you have an officer whose surname is Shrapnel, yeah, not making that up, where literally they would have a cannonball which was hollow and inside it there were bits of metal or ball bearings and it actually had a fuse on it and it detonates and spreads all that stuff everywhere, creating shrapnel. That's where we get the word from. Or you might have two cannonballs with a chain linked between them. Why would you have that? You fire it at the enemy ship's sails to tear out the sails and perhaps tear down their central beams. So, in other words, you've just disabled them. In naval battles, unlike in army battles on the land, you would have a bigger victory if you end up capturing some ships. During the Napoleonic Wars, there were a number of ships that changed sides more than once. So it might have been built by the French, captured by the English, and then perhaps recaptured by the French, or whatever. It happened once, a lot of times, it happened twice, a few times, but yes, it's taking ships is a lot more expensive. I've already pointed out how much effort you have to put into these things, just ask Peter Weir. So obviously if you've got a fleet of ships, and Britain had the largest fleet, and the Royal Navy, there is the saying, rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves, that was true. In the 1800s, there were other fleets, of course there were, but none of them compared to the Royal Navy. They're referred to, the Royal Navy is referred to as the senior service. Why? Because more effort was put into it at the peak of imperial power than the army. The British army was always surprisingly small when you compare it to their peers, like the Prussians, or the French, or the Austrians, or... If you want to compare it to another great empire of the past, 
Rome counted on its legions. They had a navy, but it was the legions that everybody feared. Around the world in, let's say, 1880, the world did not fear the British army, but they did fear the Royal Navy. They could go anywhere. They dominated any sea that they were in. They were the thing to beat. And that was one of the triggers of World War I, because Germany was trying to catch up with Britain. Now, that would have been ruinously expensive for Germany. They were never realistically going to catch up, but you get the Battle of Jutland that is a sort of testing point of that theory in World War I. My goodness, what a lot of nautical goodness I'm giving to you this time round. I digress. I've already kind of been through the movie. It is really fun. I mentioned the boy. The other thing I mentioned, I've talked about the cannonballs, and I said this to John, is the other thing I like is when they start firing at each other. There is an amazing shot in, I believe it's the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie, where there's this captain, or I think he's an admiral, of the East India Company, and he's being fired at on both sides by pirates. And it's just a great bit of special effects. In slow motion, he's walking down the steps of the ship along the, the actual bow of the ship, and everything is exploding behind him. There's just splinters and everything flying around. That is absolutely impossible. It couldn't possibly work like that in real life. But it is an amazing shot in cinema history. An amazing piece of special and visual effects there as well. But in Master and Commander, it shows you, you don't need to be hit by a musket, by a sniper up in the rigging. Like, for example, that was the fate of Nelson. But in the case of being hit in the bowels of the ship by a cannonball, that was actually surprisingly rare. But when you are firing a broadside, that's when, it depends on how many guns you have on the side of the ship, let's say there's 12 of them, when all 12 of them open up at the same time, they're going to smash into the wood of the ship and then splinters, as long as your fingers absolutely razor sharp, are flying through the air. And I think you can work out that doesn't mix very well with human soft flesh. And you see that so vividly in this movie. So it is rated 12 PG-13. They had a mind to try and get as many people into the cinema as possible. They were trying to make it as accessible for everybody. And actually... Gladiator is technically rated 15R because it is more bloody than Master and Commander, but it's just gory enough to show you the realities of injury in the Royal Navy in the 1800s, and that's not a good thing for the record. Also, this is way before things like anaesthetic or even the understanding of infection. So you had doctors like Paul Bettany quite literally sawing people's legs off and giving them some rum to numb the pain. This is not good, obviously. But all of this you get glimpses of, or more, when it comes to Master and Commander. So if it's one of these films that you either have been meaning to watch, or it's been ages since you've watched it, I thoroughly encourage you to go back to it. Because it is entertainment. This is not a documentary. And actually the thing that's going on in it is kind of made up, and a little bit of a side hustle from what was in the original Patrick O'Brien book about this situation. More on that in a moment. But it is entertainment. So I would put it into the same territory as Gladiator. You're going to have a good time. You might actually learn a few things. And it's just, while these events never happened, that sort of ship, that sort of environment, even down to the fact that they show that there were 
pestle infections in the hardtack biscuits being handed out to the crew. What on earth am I talking about in that sentence? Well, when I say biscuit, if you're British, you're thinking of, ooh, a delicious, lovely chocolate digestive, or maybe it's a hobnob, or a custard cream, or whatever. But biscuit, in the naval term, was something similar to that. It was millet and grain baked together and something very hard. So hence hard tack biscuit. And what you would invariably do is loosen it up with maybe some water or maybe some rum, etc. A tot of rum is an actual amount of rum that was given by the Royal Navy to its crew members as part of their payment every single day up to World War Two. I find that fascinating. And when people talk about grog, grog is diluted rum. So these are real words that you've heard in piratey movies that are actually references to something that genuinely were a thing in the Royal Navy. But with these biscuits, because if you're sailing around the world, you need fresh food or you're going to start dying of scurvy. This is why in America, there is a nickname. It is a kind of older nickname now for the British as Limeys. We call them Yankees. Let's not go into that. They call us Limeys because the Royal Navy would constantly be turning up with big barrels of lime or indeed lime or lemon juice being handed out to the crew because there was a realisation. Nobody knew the term vitamins, but certain nutrients were missing from the biscuits that if all you did was eat the biscuits over three months, you're generally going to get weaker. So actually you had live animals on these ships because you got some chickens there well they can lay some eggs that's some fresh food for you and you might take some pigs along with you feed them up a little bit and then a month into the voyage you slaughter them and eat them these things and also after battle you're in an ocean so you have to carry tons quite literally of more wood rope etc everything you need to patch the ship up you need to have that on the ship. So there were learning a living. You could be quite literally a carpenter. You might never see a day's action sense of firing and anger. You might be fired at, but you're the ship's carpenter and you're incredibly important. Sewing was also incredibly important because you had those sails, which might get tattered in the middle of a battle. Another thing I love, just as a final thing to do with the sign-off of how accurate it was, there is a toast in it, which all sounds a little bit cute, quite frankly. It's playing into the cliché of sailors, and there is a toast that they all make, which is... Gentlemen, to wives and to sweethearts. Wives and sweethearts. May they never meet. Ha ha, ha ha ha, everybody loves a sailor. I've got a lady in every port. But the reality is... That was a real toast made by real Royal Navy officers in the 1800s. That's how accurate the movie is. So I've talked about the food, the guns, the ladies, etc. I'm now going to move on a little bit. So I keep alluding to the fact that there's the War of 1812. This is very much a forgotten war in America. And the actual book that Patrick O'Brien wrote was actually Jack Aubrey in his ship versus an American ship, which had been super-reinforced sides, and that super-reinforced sides, in the movie, they make reference that it was made in America. But they don't say anything else, because they wanted it to launch in the American market, and let's not have the British slaughtering all these American sailors, but we can kill the French all we want. The Americans are fine with that, even though the French actually supported the Americans during your War of Independence, Revolution, whatever you want to call it. I digress. 
So after the famous War of Independence, which peace was finally signed in 1783, there was then a period of uneasy peace. In 1783, America is now a fully independent republic. But you've got people like Thomas Jefferson still in the French court. He'd obviously helped convince the French King Louis to send troops and assistance to these American rebels. Anything to annoy the British was the basic French attitude. And that wasn't too much of a bad idea. It was an easy way, a low-cost way to damage British imperial interests. But to have a guy constantly preaching how great a republic is in a royal court... Well, I'm not saying that Jefferson started the French Revolution, but he certainly didn't slow it down from happening from all of his opinions. Also, we'd had all these French officers who had literally fought side by side with Americans against the British, declaring that they want to get rid of King George III. So 1783 is when peace is finally declared, and therefore it may come as no surprise to you that in 1789 we get the start of the French Revolution. Now, cutting a long, bloody, complex story short, into the 1790s, we now get this revolutionary France that starts trying to spread its ideas of revolution. If you fast forward about 120 years, you get exactly the same thing after the Russian Revolution and the attempt to try and spread communism into other countries, and so it's seen as an epicenter trying to spread. It's the same thing with Republican France. And so you get the start of what becomes known as the French Wars, but later on the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon at the start of all of this is quite a lowly general, but he goes up in importance. But again, I'm, I'm not going to summarize 25 years. Listen to the Napoleon episode and I'll give you more on Napoleon. But during all of this, Britain obviously is quite busy, as are all the other major European powers trying to fight France. And therefore, Britain... The Royal Navy, the standard thing, was to press gang people. And that was, in essence, getting people drunk, smacking them over the head, or getting them so drunk they're in a complete stupor, giving them the king's shilling, a coin, which basically we've now paid you, congratulations, you've signed up to the Royal Navy, and by the time you sober up, you're on the ship, we're out of port, and congratulations, you have now joined the Royal Navy and you're here for at least five years. And that was happening in the American colonies. Now, this is clearly wrong. British sailors shouldn't be smacking Americans over the head and putting them on British ships and forcing them to fight in a navy that isn't even from their country. But it's the sort of thing that can be resolved through diplomacy. Return of the people, maybe some money given back to say sorry and we'll never do it again. That's the way something like that should have been resolved. But Madison... James Madison, the fourth president of the United States, who for years had been saying, let's stay out of this whole British-French thing. It was George Washington himself who actually drew up letters of neutrality. There was a big debate saying, the French helped us become independent. Surely we should help the French fight against everyone else. But there was the counter-argument led by Alexander Hamilton, which went under the basic lines of, it's a mess in France right now. Who are we meant to be supporting? People are being guillotined all the time. The king, who we did the deal with, is dead now. And indeed, America actually stopped paying France the loans that had been created during the royal era. So 
Tensions were there. There was a period called the phony war between America and France where nobody actually fired anything, but they were sort of at war with each other. But that all calmed down because France had quite literally bigger fish to fry with other countries much more important than the American colonies. But in 1811, Madison uses this press ganging as an excuse to start attacking British Imperial Canada and starting to impound British goods in the ports of America, and we now get the start of a war. This war, obviously from a British point of view, is tiny. If the War of Independence was tiny because Britain had bigger fish to fry, this is even less consequential. Britain recognised they had lost America. There was no attempt to try and recapture it. But right now, we're seeing, well, by 1812, we're seeing... Napoleon gathered together the largest army the world has ever seen and invading Russia. And he starts winning. He eventually captures Moscow. Don't forget that. So, if you like, Britain and all the rest of Europe is panicking about the power of France. So Britain can't send loads of troops over to America. But the difference between this war and the previous War of Independence is Britain doesn't feel quite as beloved to its old colony, and also its troops by now are completely battle-hardened. America hadn't fought a war since then, and Britain, meanwhile, had been fighting for over a decade in various different theatres of war against the French. And so, when we get this war, the British have far less than the Americans, and they start winning, including, I love this fact, why is the White House white? Because it was very rapidly painted after the fire damage created in 1812 when the British tried to burn it down. The British forces captured Washington, D.C. and then evacuated in good order. They weren't pushed out by an army. They didn't flee in terror of the rebels or anything like that. They'd proven their point and they moved out. But the point is, if they had sent the Duke of Wellington with the entire Peninsula army, they would have absolutely hammered the Americans. So what happens at the end is peace is actually declared in the Netherlands in 1814. But in early 1815, that news still hadn't come back to the colonies. And so you have a British assault on New Orleans, which was very bloodily repulsed. It was, it was a complete catastrophe for the British forces. But if you had had a better general there, they would have come up with something better. But also, this was an absolutely pointless battle. No matter who won it, the war had already been over, done, sorted. So because of that, this War of 1812 is kind of remembered by Americans as a sort of defensive victory. But when you look at it, all lands were basically returned to everybody at the beginning. So I would compare it more to a no-score draw. But it's worth remembering that the other thing that happened in 1815 is that Britain, with the help from Dutch allies, finally defeated Napoleon once and for all at the Battle of Waterloo. And that has been remembered by history far more than the Battle of New Orleans. So, in other words, if Britain hadn't been fighting the Napoleonic Wars, there's no doubt that America would have completely lost this war. And also, I said that the fighting started in 11, it finishes in 15. 1812 wasn't even the year where most of the fighting happened, so it's a terrible name for the war. However, at one point when the British were actually attacking a coastal fortification, there was a question about, did it still stand? Was this city still American? So the American flag was still there in the morning, which led to the poem, 
which became the national anthem, where quite literally, oh, say can you see by dawn's early light. That is literally what the person there saw as part of the poem and writes it down as a poem because they were on a British ship and they wanted to know had the British won and that little moment has been encapsulated and turned into the national anthem, which is pretty amazing and does a dotted line all the way back to master and commander far side of the world. As always, I'm at Gem Deducha on Twitter, X or whatever, or maybe not. I don't know what's happening by the time this comes out. And as always, please click subscribe. Please give us a review. Come out, come out to me. Let me know what you think of the movie or if you've got any other ideas for any of the podcasts. But as always, another episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.